Now, for those who are following the reading in the Bibles, uh, it's on page 10, 112, oh, I think. Let me have a look. Yes, 1011, actually. <coughs> and we're reading about the transfiguration and also what happened at the bottom of the mountain after that event. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus... They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, 
foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Am I on? Yes, I am on. Good, good. I'll turn it a bit this way. Well, I don't know whether you're a fan these days of sort of the talent shows that go on around the TV. Two currently, of course, is Britain's Got Talent and The Voice. <coughs> I'm not a great fan of The Voice myself, um, but I do watch a bit of Britain's Got Talent or BGT as they call it if for the uninitiated. Um, what I tend to do, of course, is tape, tape the whole program first. That's so I can go through the rubbish. There's a lot of rubbish. And, um, and uh, acts that I call totally embarrassing sometimes. But every now and then you come across someone who does something extraordinary. <coughs> so extraordinary, it's totally unexpected and amazing. Like at the moment, I saw a week or two ago this 12-year-old girl sing and out came a voice that sounded like a, a 30 year old it was quite something you could never have guessed that she could sing like that or the young man on uh, the voice at the moment actually who has Tourette syndrome <coughs> i don't know whether you know what Tourette syndrome is but Tourette syndrome is um, an uncontrollable ability to shake your head or sometimes even blurt out <coughs> speech and stuff that you would not normally say <laughs> around the place. It's a terrible thing. But here he is, as soon as he sings, it sort of goes away. And he has this incredible, amazing voice. But I think the most famous of all, when it comes to this sort of thing, I guess, is this man. I've always found it a little bit difficult to be completely confident in myself. <coughs> okay. Ready when you are. <coughs> <coughs> 
car phone warehouse. <laughs> and you did that. I wasn't expecting that. No, neither was I. I wasn't expecting that. Of course, we are talking about Paul Potts, a humble mobile phone salesman who sang opera and won BGT in, for the first time in 2007 <coughs> and has gone on since to really have a glorious career performing and singing opera and operatic sort of uh, pop music. <coughs> now, we, we might say that these sort of people have what I would call a hidden sort of glory that no one would ever suspect, uh, no matter what they thought or what they knew of the person, until it was revealed. Well, friends, I think that's a little something like what's happening or what happens to Peter, James and John in this passage that was just uh, read for us, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 29. When it comes to the glory of Jesus, you see, Jesus does have a hidden glory, a massively hidden glory that's yet to be revealed in, um, to anyone. And even in this passage, really, we only see a glimpse of it, a glimpse uh, of what his true glory is. But it's a glimpse, nevertheless, that is so powerful when it comes that it terrifies Peter, James and John. They're so frightened, we're told, by what happens. And hence, uh, the title I've given to this uh, passage today is A Glimpse of Jesus' Glory. And you've got the outline in your booklet there if you want to follow it and see uh, where we're going. <coughs> now, of course, there are some important differences uh, from the glory revealed about Paul Potts and about Jesus, as you would uh, suspect. For example, uh, Potts, of course, was totally unknown before BGT. He was a car phone salesman. Not too many people knew him before, but that isn't true about Jesus here, is it? He's incredibly well known at the moment. He's done some incredible things. He's cast out demons. He's performed various healings of uh, incredible kinds. He's demonstrated even control over the creation, over the wind and the waves. So he's not unknown. So much so that last week we saw, Mike took us through chapter 8, pivotal chapter in uh, Mark's Gospel, where it comes to a pivotal point where Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Given what he'd already done, who else really could he be? And yet, because of the type of Messiah Jesus is, his hidden glory, yet to be revealed, is still so far beyond their imagination, beyond anything they could dream of. His closest followers could expect that they're totally blown away by what happens to them in this episode, even though it's just a glimpse. That glimpse is revealed here in terms of what we call a transfigured glory in verses 2 to 4. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. 
His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking uh, with Jesus. Now, one of the very important things here that you might go straight over if you're reading this is the first three words with which the passage begins, after six days. Now, if you've been reading Mark through one-to-one with some people, um, you might realise um, that one of Mark's features in writing is that he, he hardly has any time references at all. Mark's more sort of episodic, moves from one event to another, and it's the content of the events that mattered to him more than when they happened. So if you're reading literally what it says, sometimes the translations change the words, uh, Mark uses the word immediately a lot. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Or he just says, and then this happens. That sort of thing. He's not greatly interested in specific time references. But, hello, you read this and you go, hang on, what's going on here? After six days. Why the time reference here? Why so specific? Well, of course, some have suggested, rightly, I think, to a certain extent, there are parallels here with certain Old Testament passages, particularly Moses on a mountain, on Mount Sinai in Exodus, say, 24, 15 and 16. Oh, I see. Okay. When Moses went up on the mountain, he's on Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. There are obvious similarities here, aren't there, between what's happening here and Moses, although if you were to read that story around that, um, you'd find that it is, it's a story which has a different direction to what Mark is using here. So I don't think that's the prime reason. I think the more important reason for this time reference is that it directly connects this episode, the Transfiguration, with what goes before, with the passage we did last week in Mark chapter 8. By saying after six days, Mark really does anchor the transfiguration with what happens um, before. That's its most important reason. Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus has revealed that he was going to suffer and die. A shocking thing from a Jewish point of view as far as uh, Peter was concerned, if Jesus truly is the Messiah. So in verse 38 of that chapter, just before our chapter, we get these words. If anyone, Jesus says, is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. After six days... Jesus takes, having said this, his inner circle, Peter, James and John, up a high mountain where he is transfigured, we're told, in dazzling white. So white, the, the writer has trouble describing how white it is. And in verse 7, we're told a cloud appears as well. You see, all these things in the Bible accompany times where there, are very, there is very special revelation. That one from Moses in Exodus 24 is one. There are others. These features, high mountain, clouds, voices, those sorts of things. 
This means we've got a very special revelation. Here, a glimpse of the glory with which Jesus will one day come. And I think what follows then, this transfigured glory, is meant to indicate three things about him. The first is that Jesus far surpasses the status of Elijah and Moses. Now, Elijah and Moses are the two great figures in the Jewish tradition about the Old Testament. When Jesus is transfigured, it's terrifying enough for the inner circle of the three. But then also Moses and Elijah appear and they're having a chat um, about something which Mark doesn't tell us, though Luke says it was about when he was coming. Um, you might say that this is, if you like, the summit above all summits. You know, we have the tax summit and this summit and that summit. Here's Jesus with Moses and Elijah on a high mountain. It really is the summit above all summits. Elijah and Moses sum up the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So we have, some have said, you might hear, the Salvation History Summit. That's what we've got. The whole of Salvation History is summed up in what is actually going on uh, in this incident. Now, Peter, of course, always the spokesman for the disciples, for better or for worse most of the time, is so frightened he doesn't know what to say. So, as we often see, he blurts out something that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, uh, he first calls Jesus rabbi, which is strange, isn't it? It's, he's just said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, but somehow uh, rabbi, yeah, that's strange enough. And then he suggests three shelters. How about we make some shelters for the three of you? Oh, that makes a lot of sense too. What was he thinking? People have tried to suggest various things, but it's not a whole lot, uh, whole easy to work out what he was thinking. What happens is these three shelters, his suggestion shows that he still fa fails really to understand what's going on. He fails to see Jesus' true rank. You see, Jesus is the one transfigured, not Moses or Elijah. He fails to understand the greater status in rank that now Jesus has. And what happens is that straight after this then, it's God himself who confirms that uh, greater status in rank. So in verse 7, we read, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. You see, Jesus surpasses Elijah and Moses because Jesus is God's divine son. Now, we've seen this announcement once before at the beginning of Mark, at Jesus' baptism. In 1, 10 to 11, um, we see that Jesus was coming out of the water at his baptism. He saw heaven torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But notice the difference. You see, back then, you are my son. Here, this is my son. Back then, at Jesus' baptism, if you like, God's words are an assurance to Jesus. You're my son. With you I'm well pleased. Here, 
with Peter, James and John. This is the word for them. This is my son, whom I love. Here is someone with a far higher authority than Moses or Elijah. So, Jesus far surpasses Elijah and Moses because he's God's son. The third element of Jesus' glory, I think, indicated here, looks forward to the incident that follows. That fairly long incident in verses 14 to 29 um, if Jesus surpasses Elijah and Moses because he's divine, he is God's divine son, then it should be no surprise that Jesus is shown to have power to heal every kind of evil. Now, rather than read that whole episode again, let me just summarise it for you. Jesus and the three come down from the mountain. They come to the other disciples. And what happens? There's an argument going on an argument about the problem of had casting out a demon out of a boy. The people see Jesus and they're amazed, they're overwhelmed by something about him. We don't know what, Mark doesn't say. Maybe he still had a bit of the white, <laughs> who knows, showing from the transfiguration, but nothing said. The father of the boy's frustration and pain is heard when he declares he asked the disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus in turn then expresses his own frustration with what he calls this unbelieving generation. He immediately calls the boy to himself and casts out the evil spirit. The boy seems lifeless and dead, but then Jesus merely picks him up and all is well. And then the disciples ask privately why they couldn't cast the demon out and Jesus says this can only come out by prayer. Now what's the point of this story? See Mark clearly connects it with the transfiguration because they've gone up the mountain, now they've come down the mountain and this is what they meet at the bottom of the mountain. Although prayer is mentioned, Mark doesn't seem interested in that comment apart from actually recording it. Nothing's said about it, nothing's made of it. Rather I think the event this event here is recorded at the point it is um, because it's another part of the glimpse of Jesus' glory. His absolute power to fix and heal any kind of evil we might encounter. And of course this is part of what will transpire, isn't it? What we know from the rest of scripture now. When he comes with the Father's glory and his holy angels, the new heaven and the new earth will be set up where there will be no more tears crying, pain, evil. The depth, you see, Mark emphasises the depth of this evil also. Notice, he says in verse 18, the spirit robs the boy of speech, throws him to the ground, makes him foam in the mouth, he becomes rigid, stiff as a board, we might say. In verse 22, the spirit shows, throws him regularly into the fire or into water in order to kill him. It's like Mark is giving details here to say this one is no ordinary spirit. He's a tough blighter, you might say. Here, he goes out of his way to record the level of the grip that this demon has on the person. But for Jesus, 
It's a piece of cake. Verse 25, Jesus just says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, I wonder whether, therefore, the reference to the necessity of prayer for the disciples when it comes to their ability to cast out the Spirit only goes to highlight, once again, the difference with Jesus. The awesome glory in his ability to overcome with ease (coughs) every kind of evil, no matter how tough it may seem to us to bring healing, which will typify the world to come. Of course, you see, only Peter, James and John know the full story, don't they? We're down the mountain now with everybody. They are the only ones who've seen the transfiguration. Only they know the full story of Jesus' transfigured glory. He far surpasses Elijah and Moses. The voice comes from heaven from God, confirming he's God's divine son. That this power over is displayed for everyone is only the expression of what they've already seen has been revealed to them on the mountain. And yet even they still struggle to take in precisely how this fits together with what Jesus has already told them about his suffering and death in the previous chapter with which Mark links this. And so it is to this point that we go back in our passage. The section I've left out so far, verses 9 to 13, the short conversation Jesus has with his inner circle while they are down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead actually meant. And they asked him, why did the teacher of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. What the disciples, you see, find so hard to understand and take in is that Jesus' suffering is somehow compatible with his glory. Even more so that suffering, in fact, is the path to glory. And I think that's at least one major reason why Mark specifically links the transfiguration with what goes before uh, in chapter 8. To Peter, his understanding of the Messiah made something like suffering and death unthinkable. But suffering and death, says Jesus, are not incompatible with his glory. Why? Why aren't they? Because Jesus and suffering and death will be overcome through his resurrection. The disciples had not really heard that in the first prediction of his death. You know, Jesus says, you're the Messiah, and he says, yeah, the Messiah's going to suffer and die, and on the third day he'll rise again. Well, they, they didn't get to that part. By the time Jesus said suffering and death, that was all they could hear. They didn't get to that third part of what he'd actually said. 
But notice how Jesus here mentions his resurrection again. He says, don't tell them, don't tell anybody what's to until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Of course, the problem for them is that they didn't still understand what that meant. Suffering is the path to glory for Jesus. It was so for Elijah. You see, that's what uh, Jesus is effectively saying here. Jezebel, if you went back to 1 Kings 19, had threatened uh, to kill the Old Testament Elijah with death, but had not been able to carry it out. But for the Elijah figure that was predicted to come in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, um, let me just read that. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children, the hearts of the children to the parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You see, the Elijah figure to come, the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus, well, there was no reprieve for him. And this Elijah figure, of course, Jesus says elsewhere was John the Baptist. And hence um, why he has, Jesus says, already come. And of course we know John the Baptist lost his head as a result of denouncing the marriage of Herod to Herodias as immoral. What was true therefore for Elijah, Jesus says, will be true also for the Son of Man. What he'd already predicted. The Son of Man will suffer and be rejected. And so he repeats it here. And he'll repeat it again in verse 31, straight after this whole uh, incident that uh, we've been uh, looking at. The implication, of course, friends, is that it can, cannot be any different for his disciples. If it was so for his forerunner, Elijah, John the Baptist, and so for Jesus himself, it surely will also be so for Jesus' disciples. The mountaintop would one day become permanent. The mountaintop experience will one day become permanent. And some have even suggested that that's why Peter you know, wanted the three shelters, because he wanted them to hang around a bit more, make it a bit more permanent, that sort of experience. But for now, it was only going to be a glimpse they had to come down from the mountain. They couldn't stay up there. And when they came down, what did they find? Trouble, difficulty, and the struggle against evil. That's what they found. Yes, after the resurrection, Jesus would send his spirit into each believing disciple to strengthen each one for this battle. But a battle it was, and a battle it remains each day for you and I. And for most of the 12 apostles, of course, it was a battle that would end in their martyrdom as a result of persecution. Well, from this great high point of Jesus' transfigured glory, the reality to the reality uh, that comes until Jesus returns, suffering will be the pathway. And we come to our situation today and the question that I've called sharing in Jesus' glory. And this goes back just to two statements in our passage that I've left out so far. 
uh, to speak of now. One of part of what was said with the voice speaking in the cloud and the other of Jesus' own words uh, in the incident with the impure spirit. Both, I think, are relevant for our situation today. If we are to be Jesus' disciples and share his, in his glory to be revealed when he returns, then that involves, most of all, listening to Jesus. See, God not only declared that Jesus was the divine son, but he gave this command to his disciples, listen to him. And this is surely to contrast with the previous chapter where that hadn't been happening. In chapter 8, Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah and when Jesus said the Messiah, the Son of Man, would suffer and die and rise again, Peter rebuked Jesus. That's a pretty bold move, don't you think? Peter rebuking Jesus, knowing who he was. (laughs) He rebuked him. He wasn't listening. He wasn't listening. And of course, the listening being referred to here is the listening that puts one's trust in Jesus and obeys him. The listening that Jesus was to say takes up one's cross and determines to follow him, come what may. Of course, for us today, listening to Jesus, the living word, means very much listening to what he's left behind for us, the written word, authorised through his apostles to write for generations ahead who would not see him as the eyewitness of his majesty. It means, in our part of the world, resisting the world's call to sexual promiscuity, resisting the idea that life consists in riches and wealth and what you have, and to listen to Jesus when, as we saw last week, he said that if we try to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we give up our life to Jesus in the gospel, we'll save it. Friends, is that what you really believe today? Are you really listening to Jesus? I have a little more to say about that next week when we look at chapter 10. I said a little earlier, the only reason suffering is not incompatible with glory is because of the truth and reality of the resurrection. That is why the Apostle Paul was later to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we deny the resurrection, the game's over. You've no reason to suffer if the resurrection isn't true. No reward, no hope, no ultimate glory. And in a way, when the father of the boy with the impure spirit asked Jesus in verse 22 to take pity on him, if he could, without knowing it at that stage, he was really asking whether there was ultimate hope in Jesus. And what was Jesus' answer? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Friends, this is not a statement about faith or belief. How much faith you have, how much belief you have, that sort of thing. It's a statement about God. That's what Jesus is doing. It's not a statement urging you to conjure up enough faith to accomplish some great healing, as some sometimes have taken it. It's a statement about Jesus, the divine Son of God. 
if you can, retorts Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes, that is, believes in me, who listens to me. Because I am the divine son of my father. You know, today we live in a scientific and technological age. We've reaped many benefits, don't we, as a result. Some displayed here today. But things like resurrection and eternal hope often seem like nonsense to the sophisticated modern mind. But who are you going to listen to? The one who speaks from the earth and puts their trust in themselves? Or the voice that speaks from the cloud and the son he sent who suffered, died and has now risen and ascended? Oh, let me conclude. Paul Potts and Jesus. Of course, lots of differences. But one great similarity. The level of unexpectedness of what was to happen in their presence. I mean, I still get goosebumps watching that thing from Paul Potts and BGT, if you've never seen it before. I could watch it over and over again. The same thing would happen every time uh, for me because it's just so incredible. How much more then when it comes to Jesus? Here we see just a glimpse of the glory of God's Son, yet to be fully revealed to us who know him as the resurrected Lord, way beyond the status of any great human believer, Elijah or Moses, the Apostle Paul, you can name it. The Son of God, with absolute power to fix and heal any evil you can imagine. One day, that gleaming, white, shining brilliance will be revealed in all its fullness for eternity. One day, Jesus will come in all his Father's glory with his holy angels. If we want to share in that glory for eternity, then the recipe is plain. Listen to Jesus. Seek with all your heart to obey his teaching and that of his written word. Trust him enough to suffer with him. For if you do seek to obey him, persecution will surely come your way. And hardship is often just a fact of life in a fallen and broken world. Trust him, even when life sometimes doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Why? Because whatever ridicule or hardship we might go through, eternal glory is not just a pipe dream. The resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit of God who indwells each follower of Jesus confirms Jesus' own words. Everything. Everything is possible for one who believes. Let us, friends, be numbered today and always until Jesus returns among those who truly listen and believe.